Yeah, several years ago, I got pretty deep into researching my family's genealogy and history. And so spent, I don't know how many hundreds of dollars on, on Ancestry.com. Watch out for that because they'll keep billing you even if you're not logging in. But I uh, spent countless hours looking through old census records and marriage certificates and death certificates trying to figure out where my people are from. And so I traced their movement from the East Coast out to Missouri and Arkansas and then back to the East Coast. And it's been really, really interesting. And I've gotten stuck at my fourth great-grandfather's guy named Isaac William Mills, born in 1811, died in 1862. And I can't figure out where that scoundrel was born or who his dad was. And so I'll, I'll lay awake at night sometimes wondering, you know, how can I figure this out? And I just can't. And so I've come to the conclusion that while genealogy and family research is an interesting hobby, and I'm sure some of you have engaged in it yourself or have somebody, a cousin in your family who's done it for y'all, uh, it's not the end-all and be-all for us as people. In fact, I've pretty much decided that the people who came before me in my family tree aren't really what matters most. But it's the people who come after me that matter most. I mean, we're all products of our lineage for good and bad. You dig long enough, you'll uncover some unsavory individuals in your family tree that may not be too far down the line for some of us. And uh, I got this one great-great-grandfather who threw his wife down a well. So I don't know, man. I'm just the last in a long line of scoundrels. But here's the deal. We're the product of them. None of us got to choose who our parents, grandparents were. None of us got to choose where we were born. We're just passive in the process. But every last one of us, every one of us, can impact the generations that have yet to be born. Your family tree can look different in the future than it does today, all because of the choices you make. And this morning, I want to help us each think about what that means. What does it mean to have this sacred responsibility of family discipleship? What does it mean to impact generations? How do we do that? And more particularly for us as a church, as we enter into this new season of kids ministry at CBC, what are we trying to do with kids ministry? Are we just trying to entertain kids? Or do we have some other sacred responsibility? Do we have some other burden that unless we bear it with faithfulness, we'll stand before the Lord and give an account. And I would say to you that we do, and this is the gist of that burden, that every follower of Jesus bears the responsibility to raise their children or their grandchildren or their nieces and nephews to know and follow Jesus. That's the responsibility of family discipleship, and that's what we're going to look at today out of Ephesians chapter 6. Now, if you're a guest with us, our normal way of working in sermons is that we start at the beginning of a book or at this, the beginning of a section, and then we just kind of work our way through. But today, we're just dipping in to Ephesians 6, and we're only going to look at verse 4. So I feel like it's only fair that I give you some context to what we're reading today. And it's basically this. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to a church full of people that he loved. It's hard for me to imagine that he loved them more than I love y'all. But he'd spent over two years with these people, pouring his life and soul out for their knowledge of Christ and their growth in the faith. And when he was apart from them, he kept thinking about them. 
They had an incredible impact in their region, which is modern-day Turkey. They reached the whole region around them with the gospel and planted churches from place to place to place. And so Paul continued to invest in them, making sure that they had fully understood the implications of the gospel that he had preached. He told them in Ephesians chapter 2 that though they had been born dead in their trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, God had made them alive together with Christ. They'd been saved by grace through faith and not as a result of work so that none may boast. And God had created them to fulfill these good works that he'd prepared ahead of time for us to do. I'm pointing up here because that's a theme verse for this week's Vacation Bible School. We're going to teach kids that they were created by God and they were empowered. They were, they were what is it now? Created, designed, and power. I'm going to learn that so that next Sunday I can stand up here and say it with all these kids. But that's what Paul wanted them to know. They'd been created for a purpose. Not only that, he wanted them to understand the implications of the gospel for their life together as a church. See, within the church, there were people from various different family backgrounds, primarily two. One group could trace their ancestry all the way back to Abraham. They're called Jews. And then another group couldn't. They're people like me. Know nothing dirt poor rednecks, all right? And they were fighting with each other. Who has an inside track to God? Who has privileged access to him? And Paul said, nobody has privileged access, but in Christ, God has tore down the dividing wall of hostility and created one new man in him. So that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or wherever you trace your ancestry from, in Christ, by the Spirit, you can access God through faith. The implications for their church. Finally, he told them the implications of the gospel for their family life. And in chapters 5 and 6, he breaks it down. How were they supposed to live in their household? The relationship between husbands and wives was completely transformed. He said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Radically transformed with reference to Christ. Then in chapter 6, he turns to parents and kids. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Every relationship is transformed. So the the way he goes about it is in this genre of ancient Greek literature called the household code, which is sprinkled throughout all the philosophers. They all were Uh, They all had a vested interest in making sure that people knew how to relate together in their house. But the only thing, the distinctive thing, the explicit thing, the self-conscious thing for Paul's household list is that it was all founded on Christ. In other words, what John read for us is Paul's explicit statement the distinctive way Christian parents should live. Totally different than anybody else because the way they raise their kids has been transformed by their knowledge of Christ. Of course, the approach he puts forward is in continuity with the Old Testament and what the Jews had grown up learning. And it challenged the prevailing notions of household codes for the Greeks. And if we're honest... And if we dig into it, even though it was written almost 2,000 years ago, before YouTube and TikTok 
and Bluey and Paw Patrol and all the things we as parents stay up at night worrying about or giving our kids so that they stay out of our hair. Even though it was written before all that, it has a lot to say for us. It's just as radical and transformative now as it was then because still followers of Jesus have a responsibility to raise their children to know and follow Jesus. So how do we do it? Paul, tell us. If there's a distinctively Christian way to raise my kids, you're going to have to show me. And he does. He says, number one, you're going to have to accept some responsibility. Accept responsibility. I love the way he just says it right up front, not pulling any punches. Fathers. Fathers. Now, maybe you're aware of Western history enough to know that the ancient Roman structure of society was patriarchal in nature. Men were in charge for good and bad. You put men in charge of something, either great things are going to happen or the women are going to have to show up to clean it all up, okay? (laughs) That's just the way it works. But for historical reasons, maybe Paul looks at these dads and he says, all right, dads, y'all need to think about what you're doing and get on track. Raise these kids the right way. It's this maybe historical fact that's driving Paul's instruction to the Ephesian church. Uh, The Roman society gave almost unlimited authority to dads. They could do basically whatever they wanted with their families. One commentator puts a list together like this. He said, fathers in ancient Rome could imprison their sons. They could have them publicly scourged and shamed for disobedience. Who are you looking for, Brittany? Audrey. Audrey's parents? You're looking for Audrey? No. Oh, there you go. All right. No worries. So they could imprison their sons. They could have them publicly scourged and shamed for disobedience. They could punish them in pretty much any way they wanted to. They could sell them into slavery up to three times. Or if things got real bad, Roman dads could have their sons executed just on the authority that was theirs as the head of their household. So Paul has a vested interest in making sure that these Christian men allow their authority given to them by law to be filtered and refined by their faith in Jesus. So I don't think it's just historical that Paul is, it's not just the historical reason that Paul addresses dads first. There's also this biblical Old Testament precedent. And I want you to think about this. We can make this a longer sermon that we have time for by digging through all these different pieces of information on why the Bible lays at the feet of dads and husbands primary responsibility for their homes. But we'll just go straight to the source. The Bible says that when God created the world, he made a man named Adam, formed him out of the dust and breathed life into his nostrils. And from Adam, he took a rib and created Eve. So immediately, as soon as God creates the family, there is a complementarity that Adam and Eve are meant to be together, and yet there's a certain priority that God lays the leadership role and responsibility at Adam's feet. And we know this because when Adam and Eve rebel against God's authority, disobeying the one command he had given them, God shows up, and who does he address first? Adam. Adam, what, who told you you were naked? What, what is this thing that you've done? Adam bore the responsibility. He was accountable to God for the decisions Eve had made. So I think when Paul thinks about his Ephesian friends 
and the kind of families they're supposed to pursue, he remembers this. He talks about it in other places, that the father bears the responsibility. I think that's God's design, dads. Do you realize how impactful your role is for your kids? We don't have to rely on the history of the Roman Empire or the Old Testament to prove the point. Uh, sociologists today recognize the value of dads. William Farrell and John Gray wrote a great book called The Boy Crisis. And this is what they said. Kids with involved dads do better in school, are more likely to keep steady jobs when they graduate, are better able to build meaningful relationships with other people, are able to express empathy towards others, and in fact, they live longer. Whereas kids without involved dads are more likely to drop out of school, to commit suicide, to engage in drugs and other risky behaviors. 90% of homeless teens come from fatherless homes. They have poor self-esteem, poor grades, poor social skills. As you know, almost every mass shooting the past 20 years was committed by a boy without a dad. So why did, why did Paul start talking about the family and get straight to dads? Well, I think he knew that God had created our world for dads to be present and involved in their kids' lives, to train them up towards something. I mean, it's hard it's hard to overstate the importance and value of a dad in a kid's life. You just can't do it. Every metric of measurement for success in life is made better by an involved dad. And I want to tell you, over 90% of kids who grow up in a family with a dad who's engaged in church and who takes their faith seriously grow up to follow in his footsteps. That's just the way it is. But we do live in a broken world. So dads aren't always present. And so if dad's not around, who's going to step up and fill the gap? Well, thankfully, church history also shows us the example of godly women who when dad runs off or when dad's not involved, step up and fill his shoes. In fact, Paul's own protege, a guy named Timothy, didn't have a dad who was involved. He had an unbelieving dad. But when Paul wrote his last letter of his long life to Timothy, he said, I'm mindful of the sincere faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm convinced also dwells in you. Later in chapter 2, he'll say, don't forget the things you learned and from whom you learned them. Now, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. But the reality of it is, in a broken world, dads aren't always around, but somebody's got to accept responsibility. Who's going to do it? Who's going to say, my kid's going to know and follow Jesus? Dads, the burden's at your feet. And if you won't do it, mom, it's time to step up and accept some responsibility. CBC, I'm convinced that if our church is going to make an impact in Luling, Texas, if we're going to share the hope of the gospel with every man, woman, and child in our circle of influence until they all know and follow Jesus, 
we got to disciple dads. We need to see families that are built to pass on the faith from one generation to the next. And I know not every kid's going to have a dad that's involved, and not every kid's going to have a mom who cares. But I'm telling you, as long as kids get dropped off here and go back to Jesus kids, our goal is not going to be to get this kid saved. It's going to be generations this kid's going to grow up and have a godly family. They're going to be men in this church who invest in these kids and provide them a role model. They're going to be people who are praying for them, moms and grandmas in the church. They're going to lift them up consistently and constantly. If mom's not going to do it, dad can't do it. Somebody's got to, and it's got to be us. But somebody's got to accept responsibility. Somebody's got to do it. And only that... Paul says you want to have a family like this, accept responsibility, and rethink your assignment. Rethink the assignment. You know, Paul wrote to people like us, people who thought about the future and what their life might hold, what their kids' life might hold. I don't know. Maybe dads were thinking about their young boys. Man, I hope this kid figures out the whole blacksmithing thing because if he doesn't take over my business, I don't know who will. Maybe moms were thinking, man, I hope my daughter finds a good man and grows up and gets married and has a wonderful family. Maybe some of the upwardly mobile ones, some of those with means, thought about sending their kid off to some great center of learning, to Rome or Athens or Jerusalem, where they could learn the specialized skills that were going to take them places and let them make an impact in the world. I don't know. I don't know, but I imagine because they were people parents deeply invested in their kids' well-being, that they all had some kind of goal. They all had some kind of desire that they wanted to see something in their kids' lives, and Paul just kind of sidesteps all of it. He doesn't say they're bad, your goals for your kids are terrible. He doesn't say that. But he does redirect their attention to something else. He says, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Raise them. This word raise is the same word that's used to talk about nourishing a baby plant, making sure it has all the things it needs to grow into the plant it can really be. Raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You think about what that means, the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and I think Paul just puts it on a fine point. Disciple your kids. Disciple your kids. He says, discipline, the discipline of the Lord. This is a Greek word, paideia, which was used by the philosophers to describe the whole training program that a child would go through. It comes into English today in pedagogy, the theory of teaching and learning. Everybody recognized that kids are being trained for something. They're going through some kind of educational process to prepare them for what they're going to be later in life. Plato said, the, the paideia for an ideal citizen trained them in the virtues so that, that when they were old, they could contribute to their city. People in Sparta put their young boys through a regimen, a paideia, that trained them to be selfless warriors who put the city first. But everybody was going through some kind of training process. Girls were learning from their moms how to cook and sew and run the house. Boys were learning from their dads some kind of trade. All of them were. God even talks about this in the Old Testament. He tells them exactly how they should be training their children. He tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them on a, as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The discipline and training that God challenged his people to give to their kids was to train them in the law, to help them know what God's commandments were, what kind of life they're supposed to live if they want to live under God's blessing. We should talk about it every day, impress it diligently upon their kids. God gave them symbols and signs to work through so that this was always in front of their minds so that every year they set aside a night and they're going to sacrifice a lamb and eat it together to commemorate the exodus out of Egypt and Passover. And God explicitly says the reason they're going to do this is so that when the children ask, why are you doing this? Then the parents can say, the dad can say, because we were slaves in Egypt, but God set us free. He told them to erect monument stones, pull some stones out of the river and stack them up in a pillar so that whenever your kids walk down the path and they see that monument, they're going to say, hey, what's that about? And you're going to tell them, that God rescued us out of Egypt and he stopped the water so that we could come into the promised land. That's the training. They're supposed to live inside a world where God is real, where he dominates discussion at home. When they mark out the significant events of their year with remembrance, and even the landmarks of their communities speak to him. Of course, they also are supposed to teach their children to walk in wisdom Proverbs 1, Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. The parents have a responsibility to teach their kids the law, the significance of God's activity in their world, and to learn how to walk in wisdom. And, and you put all this together, and you get the beautiful proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. Who's doing this training? Well, it's mom and dad. They're accepting the responsibility. They're talking about God every time they're at home, whenever they're out on the road. They're marking out the significant points of the years, not with birthdays, but with Passovers. You can do birthdays if you want. Don't interpret that any other way. But they're marking out the significant points of the year with God's activity. They're looking at signs and talking to their kids about what God has done, and they are teaching them to walk wisely in a way that thinks about their world from God's perspective. That's the assignment. And then Paul writes this letter. Knowing there's a church full of people who have that background, he could have said all that. Teach your children to walk in wisdom. Bring them up in the way of wisdom. Teach them to observe all the commandments. No, but instead he says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The, the training, the education that is from God, from Jesus, about Jesus. It's training that's from him. That's the assignment. To bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. You think about it. Well, what, what, where could you start? Jesus said in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Right there, parents have a ready-made training program. I want my kids to know everything Jesus said and spoke. But instead, what do we give ourselves as an assignment? You know, I'd really love for my son to find a career someday that's going to help him provide for his family and do something significant and make a difference in the world. I hope my son, my daughter, focuses on their grades while they have a chance so they can get into a good college. They can finish in that 10% of their class. I want my kid to do better in sports than I ever did. I'm going to give them every opportunity to excel. I want my kid to find a spouse that's going to make him happy. I'm going to have friends that are going to stick with him in the rest of life. And all those things are so admirable and valuable. And they help our kids become who they need to be, teaching them all kind of skills and coping mechanisms to know how to lose with class and interact with people from all different kinds of backgrounds. All these things are so important. But when God's assignment is 10 or 15 on our list of priorities for our kids, we're in trouble. We've lost it. We rearrange our schedules, fine-tune our budgets to make sure our kids have every opportunity to excel in life, but church, God, Jesus, or afterthoughts. And so it's probably the case that if we got serious about the training and discipline that comes from Jesus, we're going to have to rethink some things. We're going to have to rethink our assignment. What is God looking for when he looks at me with my kids? I want my kids to excel in every area of life, but if I'm on my deathbed, and my kids are gathered around me and don't know how to pray for me, can't sing a Christian song, don't know the Bible well enough to turn to a favorite passage and read it over me, I failed as a dad. I probably need to rethink some things, rethink my assignment that amid all the other competing things that I can do for my kids, my number one goal ought to be that they know and follow Jesus, that I'm going to wake up every morning with that as my number one goal, that every interaction I have with my kids is trained on that, that every decision we make as a family asks the question, how is this going to impact our kids spiritually? Is this going to set them up for success in their walk with Christ, or is this going to teach them to put God on the back burner, an afterthought? I want my kids to abide in Christ. I'm going to develop an attitude of dependence on God where they wouldn't think about making a decision in their life, where they're going to go to college, who they're going to date, what job they're going to take. I don't want them to make any of those decisions without first asking God, having the kind of relationship with him where it's only natural to say, what would God say about this decision? I want my kids to abide in Christ. I want them to connect in community with 
friends who are going to inspire and encourage them to follow Jesus even when it's tough. Even when it means going against the grain of what's popular, against what their other friends are doing. If they're alone in the world, even if they got a mom and dad who are attached to the hip, one day they're going to be out on their own. And if they haven't connected with friends who love Christ, they're going to inspire and encourage them to follow him. I failed as a dad. I want my kids to go on mission. I want my kids to seriously consider whether God's calling them to ministry or to missions. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I think as parents, we ought to instill in our kids the idea that missionaries are heroes, that someone would give up the American dream to take the gospel to a people who've never heard it before. That's a hero. I want my kids to wrestle with that. And then whatever they choose, whatever God leads is great. But I don't want them to grow up thinking that mission is something that the spiritual elite do. But I want them to see their whole life as for the glory of God, that whether they eat or drink, whatever they do, they do it all for him. Whatever job they take, they think of it with a mission mindset. God has placed me here with people around me who are dying and going to hell. And if I don't live my life on mission, if I don't live conspicuously different, if I don't open my mouth when it's tough, they'll never know. If I can't, as a dad, for 18 years, instill those values in my kid, what can I instill? How many of y'all are Longhorns fans? Any Aggies fans? What about Astros? I'm not going to hold any of that against you, okay? I'm a Braves fan through and through, and I roll tide every Saturday in the fall. But here's the deal. You know, my kids have no options when it comes to sports affiliations. No options. No options. Knox got some hand-me-down clothes from Riley, and he rolled in with an A&M shirt on, and I said, boy, get that off. And he laughed. You know, he thought it was great. But for real, Knox was 18 months old. I looked it up this morning in my photos. 18 months old when I came back from a weekend with my granddad in Atlanta, Georgia. We'd gone to the, it wasn't the opening weekend, but it was the second homestand the Braves had in their new ballpark, Truist Park. Now it's called something different. And uh, it was incredible. I got a new jersey. I got Knox one, and I got him a little hat. And as soon as I got home, I put that jersey on him, and I put that hat on him, and I took the picture. I'm telling you, if Knox came in one day and said he was a Mets fan or a Phillies fan or, God forbid, a Dodgers fan, I would lose my mind, okay? He's a Braves fan, whether he likes it or not. He didn't get to choose. He's a product of his family lineage. Y'all know what I mean, right? What would it take for us to get our kids to that same kind of place when it comes to knowing and following Jesus? No, we don't have options in this family. Your friends can do what they want to do, and when you're grown up and you're out of my house, your choice. But as long as you're here, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. What would it take to get to that place? No questions asked. They wouldn't even dare ask. Because they know what our family is about. That's how you rethink the assignment. You say your number one priority, all every, everything else is gravy. But if your kids can graduate high school and you're confident that you've done everything you can do 
to give them every opportunity to know and follow Jesus. Hey, that's it. They're their own person. They're going to make decisions that are going to break our hearts. But as long as we have control, as long as we have influence, as long as we bear the responsibility, we're going to accept the assignment that he's been given, that's been given to us. We're going to help them know and follow Jesus. That's the discipline, the environment in which they're going to be raised. But then there's also this second thing, and I'll just hit it quick, instruction. Now, these are almost synonymous, even in the Greek. But the word here uh, speaks more to the verbal training, and really it's after the fact. Sometimes it's translated admonition, the admonition. And here's the reality, that we do everything we can to create an environment where knowing and following Jesus is the norm. But sometimes kids are going to step out of line. They're, they're human like us. And we have to have the willingness to correct it. That's what Paul says here. The instruction of the Lord is the verbal correction that comes after a mistake has been made. When you sit your kids down and you have a talk. Now listen, this is totally different than the off-the-handle yelling that's more likely to provoke anger than anything else. This is a conversation that explains why we don't do those things or why we've chosen what we've chosen. That's the key, that after a decision's been made, after a mistake has been made, somebody has to step up and explain it. Hey, what you did was wrong there, buddy. We're not going to treat our sister that way. We're not going to hit our sister. We're not going to act out on our anger. We're going to obey mom the first time, and this is why. Who's going to say that? Somebody has to step in with some loving admonition to help them stay the course. After all, isn't that what God does for you and me? Think about what the author of the letter to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. It's for discipline that you endure. For God is dealing with you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? Don't you wish that were true? What son is there whose father doesn't discipline him? I think we've already seen if a dad would discipline, we could cut off a lot of the other problems. But what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which you've all become partakers, then you're, not, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time. That seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And this is the instruction, the discipline, the admonition that God has and shows towards us. Not a discipline or admonition that tears us down, but an admonition that pushes us forward, that says, I want you to share in my holiness. Kids, I want you to know Jesus. I know this is tough. I know punishment is not fun. I know discipline makes you mad. But I love you so much, I can't let you do this. It's not good for you. That's the kind of admonition Paul would have us pursue. 
And so as parents, grandparents, we need to rethink our assignment. We want our kids to know and follow Jesus, and we're going to have to live like it. We're going to have to act like it. We're going to have to discipline like that's the goal. And so as I close, I just, you know, I think about my family, and I told you about his name was John Dillard, who threw his wife down the well. And I think about the other people in my family tree, and, you know, by the grace of God, like Paul says, I am what I am. You know, I'm, I'm grateful for the family I have, for mom and dad who love me. But when I was reading this year in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew delicately traces the genealogy from Adam to Jesus, things connected in my mind. That God doesn't, we, we tend to think of God as dealing with us individually. Like what God really cares about is Brad's well-being. But God has a bigger picture than that in mind. That while we don't, we won't ever know our third or fourth grandchildren, and they'll probably forget us. The choices we make with our kids today can outlive us and outlast us. That if we bear this responsibility of family discipleship right, depending on the Holy Spirit, doing our very best, that God can use it to extend our influence long beyond our memory. And so this morning, I would challenge you to think about that. Think about the impact you are making in your children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews or whatever kid you come in contact with. What impact are you making? I hope it's a gospel impact because you know that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ and you're living for him day by day, looking forward to being with him for all eternity. I hope that because you believe that, that you're talking about that with them. I hope that your kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews and every kid you come in contact with knows that when you're around, you're gonna be talking about Jesus and you're gonna be helping them think about their life and their problems and their mistakes through the lens of the gospel that they're a sinner needing a savior. And if they know Christ and they have the Holy Spirit within them to help them obey, I hope you're making a gospel impact. And this morning, if y'all aren't, and there's still life in your lungs, you still have the opportunity. And so I challenge you to repent of your misplaced priority, that you'd rethink the assignment, that you'd accept responsibility, and you'd do everything within your power to help those kids know and follow Jesus. And here's the commitment I make to you. As pastor, I promise to pray for you. I promise to lift you up in prayer as you invest in the generations. I know how hard it is. I got two kids of my own. And so I'm thinking about you and praying for you. I'm glad to talk with your kids anytime you need to. And I promise that our kids ministry at CBC is not going to be about entertainment, but they'll have fun. And it's not going to be babysitting where we keep them busy while we do the real important stuff. But it's going to be about this. Number one, we're going to provide 
irresistible on-campus discipleship opportunities for kids. They want to be here. It's irresistible. And when they're here, they're going to learn about Jesus. They're going to know what it means to know and follow Jesus. Because if you won't accept the responsibility, and if they won't respect, accept the responsibility, then the people of this church will. And every kid, regardless of their family circumstances, when they step foot on CBC campus, they are going to hear about the gospel. They're going to hear they're a sinner in need of a Savior. They're going to be challenged to respond to Christ in faith, and they're going to be told about the Holy Spirit who's within them to help them obey his commands. We're going to provide irresistible on-campus discipleship opportunities with kids. And number two, we are going to equip parents and grandparents for family discipleship. We want you to succeed in your responsibility. I want you to be the hero, Dad. I'm so proud of y'all dads. I think our church has the highest per capita of dads in attendance of any church I've ever been at. Single dads, part-time dads, whatever, however you think about it. We see you, we love you, proud of you, thankful for you. And I want you to be the spiritual giant in your kids' lives. I hope they forget about Brad Mills. I hope they never hear a word I say, and I hope when they think about Jesus, they think about you. The conversations you had in the truck over breakfast, on camping trips. And moms, I promise, I'll do whatever I can to make sure you succeed in the role that you're given. You're heroes. And more than that, you're the person God in his wisdom chose to give these kids. He didn't give them to me. Didn't give them to Pastor Jerry. We get to see him one hour a week. You've been given 18 years that are quickly slipping away. And while they're in your house, we want you to succeed. And we're going to do everything we can to equip you. That's why Jerry's here. Jerry's here because God called him here, but he's here because it's important. If we miss the kids when they're young, we'll lose them forever. Y'all pray with me.